This Magic the Gathering podcast and many more can be heard online at manadeprived.com slash podcasts. Leave a comment and tell us what you think. Hey, Roman. Hey, Michael J. Welcome back to the Ancestral Re- Recall podcast. This is episode two mm-hmm. of the Ancestral Recall podcast. I hope people keep listening to it so that it's not just like two of two. <laughs> I hope so also. So last week we did Flora's Friday, How to Win a Pizza Key, which is quite a long article. So I thought maybe we'll mix it up this week and, and do a shorter article, but yeah. also one that's pretty good. All right. So what are we reading today? This week we're going to read an article by the legendary Reed Duke. Called Who's the Beatdown? No, I love Reed Duke. I love Reed Duke. He's such a nice guy. He didn't really write this article. No? I don't know why people think Reed wrote this article. Who wrote it? I did. You wrote this article? I wrote Who's the Beatdown, yeah, in 1999. You're looking at me like you don't believe... You really... Because you told me Reed Duke wrote it. Like, people think Reed Duke wrote this article. I'm actually... I don't know why. I haven't seen Reed in a while. Is it published under his name? I don't, um, I don't know. What do you mean you don't know? I don't know. There's, like, totally, like... <laughs> People laugh about it all the time because people think Reed wrote it, but I wrote it. You just really don't believe me that I wrote Who's the Beatdown? I don't know. You're telling me two different things here. Let's just read the article. Okay, let's read the article. So, <laughs> uh, again, the Ancestral Recall podcast is the story of a lot of different stories, um, articles from the classic canon of Magic the Gathering, probably mostly written by me. But it's also the story of young Roman Fusco, who's an up-and-coming player from the New York area and is complete lack of having read the magic canon so <laughs> really we're introducing roman also to these these great articles and roman uh a player who mostly reads clickbait because that's what they have right now I mean, deck- maybe i don't, don't read that much anyway <laughs> clickbait and deck lists um you know he's his goal is to kind of bounce off and say hey how is this article still relevant if it isn't so relevant yeah, maybe like, like- what, what can players who are interested in playing competitive magic now or maybe getting into it recently, what could they learn from these articles that were published 10 years plus ago? And this one, 19 years ago. All right. Wow. Yeah. 19 years ago, Who's the Beatdown? Anyway. I'll read it. Who's the Beatdown? The most common, yet subtle, yet disastrous mistake I see in Tournament Magic is the misassignment of who is the Beatdown deck and who is the Control deck in a similar deck versus similar deck matchup. The player who misassigns himself is inevitably the loser. You see, in similar deck versus similar deck matchups, unless the decks are really symmetrical, i.e. the true mirror match, one deck has to play the role of beatdown, and the other deck has to play the role of control. This can be a very serious dilemma if, say, both are playing aggressive decks. Let me give you an example. At a 1.x PT, then it's extended. Mm-hmm. I don't know, but we had all kinds of shorthand. At a 1.x PTQ in Washington, D.C., my teammate Al Tran was playing for a top 8 slot versus Sly. Al was playing Landy Ho's White Weenie Jank deck, normally an aggressive deck, but not versus Sly. Point of trivia, I'm having lunch with Landy Ho tomorrow. Oh, really? True story. The match was split 1-1, and the third game was going to determine who made top 8. 
Al's opponent went first and laid a jackal pup. At this point, Al had two cursed scrolls, two swords to plowshares, an honorable passage, and some land in hand. Do you know what all those cards are? I, what does Curse Scroll do again? Curse Scroll is an artifact. It costs one, and it has the text three tap, uh, name a card. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then your opponent picks a card from your hand at random, and if it's the card that you named, they take two, or a creature takes two. Gotcha. So. I think one good thing to do is maybe we'll put images of the cards below the, the podcast just to have a good reference material. Are you going to cut this part out? Yes. Okay. <laughs> Al chose not to plow the jackal pup, taking two on the first attack. His opponent played another pup. Al didn't plow it either, waiting on scroll mana or a lightning. On his own second turn, Al played another land and a curse scroll, so he only had one land up. On his opponent's third turn, you guessed it, another mountain came down, followed by ball lightning. Al was forced to plow the ball. He gained control over the next few turns, but ended up dying to bolts. What was the problem here? Al was a beatdown deck and wanted to deal damage to his opponent via the Jackal Pups. However, in this particular matchup, he had to play the control deck. You see, Sly is just much faster than Jank. So Jank's way to win has to be stifling Sly's early speed with removal and then locking down the mid-game with Curse Scrolls. Because Sly also has Curse Scrolls, as well as more bolts than Jank, the only way that Jank can win is to make sure it has a decent life total as it plays its own threat cards. Though it ostensibly hurts the initial race to give the Sly player four additional life from the Jackal Pups. You can see from this example that Al had to give him six more life from the Vol Lightning, and still took at least eight from the Pups before he could control them. It would have profited Al much more to plow the Pups, passage the ball, and enter the mid-game with 20 life, as he started to threaten with his own paladins, priests, etc. The same comparison can be made when two control-based decks slug it out. At the same PTQ, I was playing High Tide against what is normally a dangerous matchup for me, Counter Sliver. My opponent was running the usual array of Slivers, Worship, and Permission, as well as Curse Scroll. He made the mistake of thinking he was the control deck. After playing a turn 2 Crystalline Sliver, He followed up two turns later with Worship, so I stroked him out. I killed him the first game with Palancron because I mostly showed him some disrupts, horse spikes, and card drawing. He may have thought I was a more creature-heavy deck. It doesn't matter. He thought he was the control deck in this matchup when clearly I was the control deck. I had a comparable or greater amount of permission, but where he had slivers, I had card drawing and deck manipulation. Where he had dual lands, I had thawing glaciers. My thaws were going to ensure that I never missed a land drop. I'd already housed a couple of his brainstorms with Disrupt. This means that I was going to win the long game every single time. His job, therefore, was to kill me before I killed him. The normal formula is to place some decent-sized slivers, two power or more, attacking every turn and leaving mana open to try to counter whatever the opposing blue deck does that might be threatening you. You know, a Wrath of God an Engineered Plague, or in this case, the High Tide finishing combo. First of all, he probably should have tried to threaten me more aggressively. Only one Crystalline gives me lots of turns of thawing and card drawing. Secondly, tapping out is the death knell. I didn't even have to waste a turnabout on him. In similar deck versus similar deck matchups, there are a couple of things that you want to look at to figure out what role to play. Number one. 
Who has more damage? Usually, he has to be the beatdown deck. Number two, who has more removal? Usually, he has to be the control deck. Number three, who has more permission and card drawing? Almost always, he has to be the control deck. If you are the beatdown deck, you have to kill your opponent faster than he can kill you. If you are the control deck, you have to weather the early beatdown and get into a position where you can gain card advantage. For an example of correctly determining who is the beatdown deck and who is the control deck, look at the Sly versus Sly matchup between Price and Pacifico at the top eight of the 1998 U.S. Nationals. Although on the surface the two players seem to be playing very similar decks, there are major design differences. Dave's deck was running more Curse Scrolls than Pacifico's, and he also had Hammer of Bogardon and Fireslinger. His only real beatdown was Jackalpup and Ball Lightning. The rest of the deck was more control and utility-oriented. Pacifico's deck was much more damage-oriented. It was based around attacking and celerity creatures. There was no keyword haste at that mm. point, so... Um, celerity was the was the R and D name for haste. So forgot about that celerity. <laughs> celerity creatures instead of dedicated removal. In addition to jackal pup and ball lightning, he had goblin vandal, mog flunkies, sukata fire. I'm sorry, sukata lancer and viashino sandstalker. Furthermore, Pacifico's deck lacked fire slinger and hammer bogardon, and ran only three cursed scrolls. While Dave's deck could definitely get a quick start, in this matchup his deck was the control deck, set up for the long game. In one duel, Dave just played land and scrolls and did very little elf. He started by removing Pacifico's creatures with blocks or bolts, then scroll locked him, gained a little card advantage, and finished the game. Had Dave tried to race Pacifico, he might not have won. When two players are just blindly throwing their creatures into one another, the one with more damage-oriented cards is going to win the race but I figure we expect good Sly play from the King of Red. Finally, think about the Suicide Black versus Sly matchup. These are both very fast beatdown decks. Sly invariably wins. Which deck has more damage? Suicide Black. It runs many high power-to-cost creatures like Carnifage, Sarcomancy, and sometimes Flesh Reaver. This is a deck you played that PTQ that you referenced last week. Uh, I think that I wrote this article before I won that Okay, uh, I'm. I'm not sure. I don't know. Yeah, I actually, I, I don't remember. Maybe people played those cards, but yes, people. I played those cards, and then like I referenced last week, that's true. Sometimes it has stuff like hatred. It damages even itself. I mean, I can tell you this era in 1999. I, I always played black aggro, mm-hmm. and like I won, like all the big local tournaments. I won multiple PTQs regional championships. I'm not top four regional championships, right, to qualify for nationals. Came in ninth at nationals here with a Black Beaton deck on tiebreakers, which was the biggest kick in the face. Heartbreak. Because I was... Yeah, so I, close. <laughs> well, I thought that I was going to make top eight. Yeah. I was like seventh going into the top eight in the, in the last round, and then I won. And I finished ninth. Ooh. Yeah, it was like the worst. Thanks for... Picking up the scab, though, Roman. <laughs> it's been 19 years, and now I'm really upset. <laughs> Anytime I can do it, I'll do it. Which deck has more removal? Sly. If Suicide Black 
even runs curse scrolls, the slide deck can invariably match them. Moreover, the slide deck has not just weenies, but bolts. Though Sly is very fast, goldfish around turn 4, Suicide Black can goldfish on turn 2 or 3, depending on the version and the ritual draw. Clearly, the Suicide Black deck has to be the beatdown deck, and the Sly deck has to be the control deck. Literally, at regionals that year, I killed a, like a 7-year-old kid on turn 2. Like, no mercy. No mercy. No mercy. <laughs> <laughs> However, Suicide Black can't afford to be the beatdown deck. It can't lay many of its clocks, especially Sarcomancy or Flesh Reaver, because the Sly deck has so many bolts. It can almost never cast a Hatred for fear of an auto-loss to an Incinerate. So it can't really beat down, and the Suicide Black deck has to try to be the control deck. Anyone who has ever witnessed this matchup, at least when Sly deck gets a decent draw, knows how well control-oriented Suicide Black turns out. Misassignment of role equals game loss. After sideboarding, the Suicide Black deck has traditionally done much better. By taking out a lot of its Damage Myself cards for creature removal and life gaining, it can play the control control role more adequately and has a much improved, if not great, chance of winning. Mike Flores, Cabal Rogue, Team Discovery Channel, and my 1999 Yahoo address (laughs) are uh, how we finish that one out. Do you imagine signing every article with your email address? Like as, like people would mail you if you did. <laughs> did you get fan mail back in the day? I did. I did. All right. So good little quick article there. So what do you think about who's the beatdown? It's it's a great article for talking about how to if you're playing a similar deck to you know to your opponent. What role you should take in the matchup, depending on like what cards are are in both of your seventy fives. So, let's talk about your recent uh, deck choice of Borosperm mm-hmm. for for modern, right? So, if you think about that and think about, if not the literal mirror, right, but the the functional mirror in modern. What are the axes? that you operate on that are different between like you and your opponent and then separately let's talk about how that Boros deck might relate to arguably the most popular deck in modern at least coming up to now which I think the Breaking Anarchy deck is going to become very popular which which would be Jund right Mm -hmm. so just first let's talk about the red white deck against What's the probably mirror. more common? Red, white, green deck, right? It's sure, the, it's the more common. So of burn. when we talked about playing burn for the RPTQ, um, one of the the main choices was we were going to cut green and play straight red, yeah. white. So we're going to cut green and play inspiring band, right? yeah, which is plateau. Yeah. So my my thinking on that is simply that inspiring Vantage is actually the best card in our seventy five. Like, yeah, it's insane how good the card is in that deck. Yeah, and. I think at the time there were a lot of really aggressive, like Burn was is still pretty popular. Affinity, um, the Suicide Zoo decks, yeah. Um, so Death Shadow Zoo, Death Shadow, yeah, yeah that's what I mean. Um, so one of the, the things was uh, when you're playing with a Tarka's Command, like Wild and Cattle, you're starting off the game at 14 life because you're fetching for both. Stomping Grounds and yeah. Sacred Foundry. If you have Wild and Cattle, you basically have to sk- uh, search for first Stomping Grounds. I mean, you're starting, I mean, you're playing a one minute 3-3, three, three, but you're starting off the game at a very low life total. But when you're playing Boros Burn, and you're not playing, um, if you're not, if you don't have to, to search for a Shockland, 
you're starting off the game at around 18, 19 life. And you can mitigate that damage by playing for Helix, which is what we did. Yeah, so most of them play like zero to two Helix. Like maybe they have cyborg Helix. Like two usually for those lists. So for that tournament, right, which is before the banning of Gitaxian Probe yeah. in Modern, like that, think about what's different, right? We have four copies of Searing Blood. Or which one is it? Searing Blaze? Searing Blaze. We have four copies of Searing Blaze. And they have four copies of Wild and the Cattle. Yeah. Like, <laughs> that's like peanut butter and chocolate for us, right? Because they give us this great target that doesn't have haste, right? And mm-hmm. then... And they also have a Tarkus Command in their deck. Yeah. Which is one thing you mentioned a while ago was that they have to... They're, they're playing their games at a low life total, starting out. Because Tarkus Command can be really good against us because if they're playing Wild and the Cattle, they can just kill us with bumping their team and dealing us three. But at the same time, it's a really bad card against us because they have to start the game at such a low life Yeah, it's also like, unless they're catching us with a lightning helix, which is relatively uncommon, Yeah, then it's the weakest card in their 75, right? It's Yeah. It's basically a two-mana deal three that forces them to take extra damage to cast it. Mm -hmm. So, like, I felt like on that axis we were, like, really well set up. And then you're like, oh, well, your deck must be worse against everybody else. I didn't think so. I thought it was, like, outstanding against Jund. I beat, like, I don't think I've come close to losing a match against Jund or Abzan, and I think that the specific choices are actually feeding that. If you mm-hmm. if you think about, like, what's Jund, and Ab- what's Jund have, right? They've got, like, Maelstrom Pulse, Abrupt Decay, Terminate. This is before uh, Fatal Push came out. Yeah. In Modern. Like, all really good flexible removal cards, but they cost two or three mana. We're playing cards, every one of our creatures, we only have 12 creatures in our version, either is an Eidolon or has haste, right? So they're casting cards that cost two against cards that cost one. That's already bad. But the guy had haste or is an Eidolon, so they're like double behind, right? Mm-hmm. So if you think about it from the paradigm of who's the beatdown, in the Boros versus Naya comparison... They're almost like the Suicide Black deck and we're the Sly deck, right? Like yeah. They're damaging themselves at a greater proportion than we are. And, like, they're just... They're in a hole to begin with. But in this case, it's hard to get out of the hole because unlike Suicide Black, where you could just side out your creatures that damage you, the reason they're behind is because their mana base forces them to play a certain mm-hmm. way, right? Against, against Jund, like... I don't even know what they're supposed to do. Their deck is so clunky, and our deck is so elegant. You know, at least heads yeah. up. Like everything that they draw is just like kind of too slow to matter, and um, it's it's a case I think where they're supposed to be the control deck, but if every one of their answers is a little bit wrong, like because it costs a little bit too much mana, or they can draw the wrong answer. I once lost a, a game, not a match. I won the match, but it was a game against Jund where I drew, like... I cited in Relic of Progenitus because I thought it would be good against Tarmogoyf. So I drew, like, all Relic of Progenitus. And, um, like... But you're you're the beatdown. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I don't know. It was, like, experimenting. Yeah. And, like, he drew all Planeswalkers. It's also, like, if you bring in Deflecting Palm, too. Right? What if you bring in Deflecting Palm against your opponent's second-turn Grizzlebrand? How does that work? Have you, ever, have you ever had this experience where maybe you would have a deflecting palm in your hand and your opponent had a second turn grizzle brand? Yes. What did, I, did I have two mana up? I think you might have. I think you might have suspended a rift bolt and then told him to go. 
<laughs> what, what happened? Third turn it? Grizzle Brand. Yeah. Uh, I deflecting palm that Grizzle Brand. Was that a tw- is that a twenty one point wise swing? <laughs> <laughs> I think it might be twenty one points. Anyway, um, but it's that's a good point about playing that that burn like mirror match against the the Naya build that plays all those shock lands. So what, what do you think about let's let's maybe talk about standard for a minute like green black is really popular. Yeah, if you're playing the green black mirror, so you're on a, like you're on like Brad's deck. And are, am I energy or am I delirium or am I just say, like the mid range deck? Like the mid range, like, like like Brad's version with like the main deck Gontes. Say you're playing a similar seventy five to your opponent. Yeah. How do you like? How do you approach sideboarding, or who, how do you approach? So going into that, I think that. It depends. I'll give you a parallel thing from a format that I was a stone master. Mm-hmm. So it's a format that nobody likes called Mask Block Constructed. It's a Mercadian mask. Yeah, yeah. But I top aided every week. So the defining characteristic of Mask Block Constructed was the presence of rebels. All right. So do you know like Ramosian Sergeant, uh, Lin City? I think you mentioned to me a while ago. So. Ramosian Sergeant, you could play it on turn... And the priest removal was really bad back then. Like, yeah. Three mana, destroy a creature, and they get a 1-1 spirit if you kill it. Like, that was the creature. Um, I played a match, Rebel Mirror match in game one against Justin Polin, who was a Grand Prix Top 8 competitor. We ended up being riding partners at some point, actually. So I played a first-turn Ramosian Sergeant. He didn't have a first-turn Ramosian Sergeant, and I buried him in Rebel Advantage. So in between games, he said to me, you only won because you had a first turn Ramosian Sergeant. Like the subtext being, I'm better at magic. Yeah. So, and I was just like, tell you what, Justin, I'm going to cite out all of my rebels, and then I'm going to beat you like a child. <laughs> He's just like, shut up, Mike. So I cited out all of my rebels, <laughs> and I beat him like a child. And then after that tournament, that became the acceptable practice for how to sideboard in the Rebel Mirror was to actually take out all of your rebels. And the reason is the Rebel decks in large part... Remember, the the creature removal was abysmal. Okay, So the way that the Rebel decks works is like you would search up this card called Rebel Enforcer, which mm-hmm. was a, actually a, merc, a mercenary rebel, but he was black. You couldn't cast him. You could only search him up. But he had the ability to put... He had, had the ability to put a rebel on the bottom of somebody's library. At, you could just tap three and really powerful. So if you had the assumption that your opponent has access to four mana at any point in the game and a rebel in a in a Ramosian sergeant, he'll be able to chain into this card. I mean it was really hard to kill. The creature removal was horrible, right? So you were basically in a situation where it was kind of good to get flooded and anyone could kill any number of rebels. So the main thing that was a the most powerful card was this card called Parallax Wave. I don't know if you know it. It's an enchantment. It costs mm-hmm. white, white, two. It comes into play with, like... Vanishing, right? Yeah, fading counters. Yeah. And then you can remove a fading counter to remove a creature from play. But when it fades away, the creatures all come, come back. back, right? So, um, so it was weird because Disenchant was good against their best removal card, if that makes any sense. Right? So what our strategy became was to play so many enchantments after sideboarding that you overloaded their disenchants. So you'd have, like, Story Circle White. That's basically Circle of Protection White. Mm. And then, like, they could have all the rebels in the world. They couldn't kill you. Or you just, like, tap a mana. And so 
uh, at some point we were so extreme that we played a 61 card deck with the outlook of just decking them with Story Circle. So it actually became the acceptable way to, to uh, at least in our in the Northeast, and like we're, our our technology was like really substantial in, in the Rebel Mares, even though they were played internationally. But the anyway, the story is I literally told Justin. I'm going to side out all my rebels, and I'm still going to be. And that's what happened, and then everyone did this. So to answer your 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 question about if I'm playing... Am I playing against Brad, or am I just playing against a regular Anyone. person? Anyone. Like a regular person. Regular right? person. You're at a Grand Prix Day 1. I'm at a Grand Prix Day 1, and they're playing the same deck as me? Or sure. Playing... Similar deck. Similar so, enough. What I would want to... Fig- well, I, I have to think about what the tools I have are, right? Sure. But it's. I think that the power of my cards is... Based on like Winding Constrictor and Rishkar, and yeah, like they're so that power is all in the cards. I don't think I can probably take out enough of the cards and then supplement them with cards that kind of get out of the way. Like when I when I did the thing I did in the example I talked about, part of it, part of my calculus was that my opponent would be playing in such a way that his entire strategy was pointed at a location on the map that I had removed from the map, right? So mm. I'm, re- I'm going to attack the hell out of Gibraltar, right? <laughs> but there's no Gibraltar on the map. Well, what's he doing? And mm. I'm just swarming him from other directions. I don't... I think because of the the speed constriction of standard right now, that's not something that you can easily do. I think probably the the way that I would approach it is before the tournament started... I would look at my green-black deck and say, how can I construct my deck in a way that I can preserve most or all of the things that Brad was trying to accomplish when he designed this deck, but that I can have more card advantage in the mirror match after sideboarding? Sure. That's the way, like, like I need to have way more card advantage than my opponent. We, we were working on a sideboard, you and I, recently, where I said, if we're going to go down this road, like you wanted to have kind of a middle ground sideboard. Like, oh, yeah. let's play some Gideons. Let's some. I'm like, no, we have to play 15 offensive cards. Like, Which is kind of crazy when you think about yeah, it. Like, but... We don't have a sideboard if we're playing against Mardu vehicles. We just Our deck has to be good against, enough against Mardu vehicles that it's going to last in the sideboard. But if against. our deck is really bad against Sahili, we have to have yeah. a really transformational approach to it. Because you, don't, you won't have enough threat density if you don't commit all 15 cards yeah. to offense. So I think I would I'd try to do something like that. Where like, look, is my deck fundamentally sound? Can I yeah. can I operate against most decks in game one? Yeah, so at Grand Prix Pittsburgh last weekend or two weekends ago, um, I was playing green-black. I was playing Brad's deck. Um, and I went, like, so I went um, X and two day one. Seven and two on day one. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but one problem I had with my, my 75, which... Um, Your losses were to Anande Carr, who made top eight, right? And to Brad. And to Brad. Okay. <laughs> so, um, to be fair, like, so sure. you, you guys probably were feeling like you were riding pretty hot weekend after weekend. No, I, I, felt, I felt pretty good after my day one performance. Not great, but um, I think one thing I was having trouble with competing against some of the other... I, I, mean, I, beat, I beat the mirror a considerable But not against times. the Grand Prix top eight competitor or Brad, right? No. So. Um, they played a match against AJ Kerrigan, who knocked me out of top eight contention, and I was like nine or nine nine two. Um, but his sideboard was a lot more transformational. He was playing the more uh, delirium approach with traversal of the Uvenwall and, and Grimflayer, but out of the sideboard, he brought an Ishkanah against me. 
It crushed me. Because you weren't prepared for it, right? I was not your, prepared. Your removal suite was probably Fatal Push and minus four minus my, one. Yeah, yeah my, my removal suite for the weekend was like mono, fatal, like four Fatal Push, uh, going on like uh, on Grasp of Darkness, but I really wasn't that prepared for them. I, I should have been more prepared for the mirror. I had cards to my sideboard for the mirror, but I wish I had had like more ruinous paths, more murders. Maybe I should have been playing the tra- the traverse package with this Shina also. So like like Ananda was playing um like noxious gear hulk out of his sideboard, which is great in the mirror. It's really in the mirror, right? Like yeah. you're committing you're committing um a threat that's pretty substantial and you're just reversing the the, the yeah, board. Yeah, I think I, I think parts of my build were correct with playing two Gaunti main one sideboard for the mirror, but um I think if you want to preserve one of these angles, whether it's the mirror or another matchup, yeah. you have to be willing to commit and like we were talking about in last week's episode, you have to be willing to like really like draw a line in the sand or plant a flag like you're going to do this thing. Otherwise, you're just going to if it's your day, it's your day, but otherwise you're just going to passively lose. There, there's, there's not much difference in my mind to trying to go all out on something and then failing miserably and going four and five. Mm-hmm. Right? Like, oh, well, I won about half my minutes. They're both garbage, right? Like, if you don't win, every, every outcome other than winning is the same. And you, maybe you feel a little more foolish because you took a chance, but your chance, like, gives you an opportunity to win when you... Like, you, that you can't, that you can't encompass with just thinking about well, what's the average value that I'm going to have on this. Mm-hmm. Because going four and five stinks. Let's give you an, uh, a really salient example in, in my mind. I don't know if you remember when we met. Uh, the deck I was playing, I played red white Matt Sperling's deck from the top eight. It was a long time ago, I was playing like John Monsters. <laughs> yeah, you were playing John Monsters. It was it was not good. And I was playing Matt Sperling's deck uh, main deck. I'd worked with Matt for that Pro Tour. It was his first Pro Tour time. Yeah. Um, and Matt lost to Even Flulk in the top eight of that Pro Tour who's playing... Blue-white, right? Yeah. Uh, Svenskis of Revelation. Deck. Yeah. So I was like, well, I really like Matt's deck in game one. Again, I won that Uncommon's Tournament. I was really geared up. I had a great winning percentage on Moto with it. Yeah, you won like a, a 10-man Tuesday night standard event. Good for you. Well, I mean, I played a bunch. <laughs> whatever. Um, but Anyway. But... I was aware that um, that people were going to play Sphinx's Revelation decks. That was yeah. like one of the main things. So, like, how, well, how do you how do you solve for this, right? So, what I ended up doing for the Invitational, and I beat every Sphinx's Revelation player I played against. Uh, incidentally, I beat Brad in that tournament also. Uh, I was playing uh, Red White Mirror, but um, I played Stormbreath Dragon in my side. Hmm. So the thing is like. What you want to do is you actually play a strategy where you overcommit your creature. Get a bunch of creatures in play so they can't help but play their sweeper. Their right? supreme verdict, right? Yeah. Or now, planar cleansing. Whatever it is they've got, right? You you make it delicious for them, right? And then you play your fifth lane and play Stormbreath Dragon and get them. There's two things going on. Number one, they just got their sweeper out of their hand. If they have a second sweeper... Maybe you have a second dragon, but maybe they don't have a second sweeper, right? They don't have a second sweeper, they're dead. Like, they, even if they chain multiple Sphinx's Revelations together, you're going to... Stormbreath Dragon will kill the heck out of them, right? That was Especially a, once it monstrous is, too. Yeah, like... It, One damage it, for each card. Yeah, hand, card right? and it's oh. huge, right? And it is prop white, right? They can't yeah. kill it. So, that was, that was my strategy. Like, the first time I dropped it against, like, 
uh, you know, a, a chess guy player. I think I think I was to go X and one on day one, which is what I did that day. He was just like his eyes bugged out, right? Like this was like a small casting cost we needed. And you're yeah. like, this is like, a, it's like a demi five mana, four, four flying haste. Yeah, like, it's like a demi transformation here, right? And and so that's kind of my point, right? Like, if, if I'm going into the tournament, right, and I'm playing in a tournament where I have a decent chance of playing against Brad playing his own deck, I'm never going to beat him in a legitimate matchup if we're playing with the same tools. He is a master, right? And he has thought about this way more than I'm ever going to have thought about it. The only way I'm going to win is if I've put thought into something that allows me to take Gibraltar off the map. He's going to aim somewhere that I'm not, or I'm going to play something that he can't deal with. And sometimes you're wrong. But being aggressively wrong and going, I don't know, two and seven isn't so different from being passively wrong and going four and five. Sure. Like, if one of them, you get the right matchups and you just, you just, you're it. That's it. I mean, if somebody said to you, I'm going to go fly across the country to play five color mono blue dragons, like you'd think they were lunatic. <laughs> uh, <laughs> Who does that, right? Yeah. Right? So. I mean, I thought it was extremely crazy. Yeah. And I won that tournament, right? Sure. So, um, the, you know, it's, it's not about being different to be different. It's about trying to identify the axes that other people are going to operate on and putting yourself in a position where they don't have tools that are going to be effective against the cards you're playing mm-hmm. or you're going to have tools that put you at an overwhelming advantage. I think the Stormbreath Dragon is the best example. Yeah. Like, you make it so that they cannot ignore your, you know... Your, your main game yeah. plan. Like, but right. Also, you have this other axis of attack that they... If you play right and you overcommit, like you said, yeah. in the Supreme Verdict... Just have a great threat that that's really hard for them to deal with. Yeah, they can't. They can't easily. You can't Azorius charm it or whatever that yeah. they were doing back then. So, um, to answer your question, if I'm playing green black, how do I approach it? I think that I would want to approach it from the Stormbreath Dragon angle, which is what is the biggest thing that I can reasonably play that puts me in a position of overwhelming advantage. You've noted two different cards that are bigger than anything you played, right? So you played Gonti. Yeah. Gonti is a four-mana card that gives you basically a plus-one card advantage at some point in the future, but you have to invest additional resources, Mm -hmm. right? AJ played a card that's a five-mana card. It's only one more than Gonti that gives gives an overwhelming advantage, not just in that he has all these bodies that he can defend himself with, but you can't easily remove Ishkana because your removal are... Minus four, minus four, or fatal push has too much toughness. Uh, Anande played a card that's really big, also, and then gives advantage on multiple axes. A, it's bigger than anything in your deck, probably, right? Just sheer size. Mm, for Doctor Scare Hulk, well, yeah. uh, we have Verdurous Scare Hulk, but it kills our Verdurous Scare. Well, he has Verdurous Scare. Yeah, he also has it so. too. But I mean, if you want to get into like how many Rishkars, whatever, you don't know. Winding, I mean. but like just body for body, it's the it's huge. Yeah, it's huge. And secondly, it helps him so much on these other angles, right? Yeah, it, it picks off a threat. Probably your biggest threat, back. right? And it's, a, it's also a threat that has menace. Yeah, so it's also a great racing card. Yeah. Right? So I think that I would try to find some card that allowed me to... The one that my head went straight to is Obnexilis. Mm-hmm. Is that good? I'm not sure. Yeah, I think so. I think that there, but there's, you can just come over another angle. 
if you're like, what if you played the, the, what's the two mana elf guy that we always play that has energy, energy elf? Servant of the Conduit. Well, Servant of the Conduit and, and, um, Catacomb Sifter, like kind of the Ephro deck. Yeah. With Verder Skierhulk. I think that's a way to go. Um, if yeah. people are like worried about these other axes and your entire game plan is to have the fastest Verder Skierhulk and you're playing with Blossoming Defense and they're not, that's a different thing. Sure. But I was also playing, um, multiple copies of Aethersphere Harvester, which caught a lot of people off off guard. Um, because if in your main deck, if you're packing, you know, for you know, any amount of Fatal Push, Grasp, and, like, one murder, if I have a Harvester, and I put counters on it with Gear Hulk, that's a lot that? of swing. Yeah. I mean, it gets worse after after board, when they know you have it, and they... We're going to make more, like, burners and so, stuff, but you can burn them out. We were talking about this as a separate as a separate topic, and I think this is a horribly underplayed card in Standard. Why doesn't anyone play Clip Wings anymore? It seems like it should be one of the best cards to me. Is there a better card? I thought I, I told you this card is, is better. Clip Wings costs two, and it's green. Right? Like, it kills... Like, you can't really miss a Heart of Kirin, right? <laughs> yeah. But what happens if you draw a Clip Wing, and then their game plan is... Gideon's and Chandra's. I don't think you're going to have Clipwing in your deck if it's not effective. Like, you, well, yeah. it's not a main deck card. Well, it depends on, like, how they board. I know probably Nobody's some... siding out their Heart of Kirin, Roman. I don't know. I think some people might. Side out Heart of Kirin? Yeah. It's, it's always possible. All right. Maybe you're right on that one. Yeah, I don't know if I want to have Clipwings and my opponents killing me with a... a, a indestructible 5-5 five, five every turn. I mean, Gideon is the dumbest. Like, I don't yeah, even want to is. say about the card. It's like <laughs> the dumbest. Gideon and Heart of Kirin in play in the same deck is just abusive. Yeah. You just use it three times a turn? Like, that's fair. <laughs> like, literally, like, Heart of Kirin, Gideon, make a 2-2, two, two, smash you for four. It's like, smashes for, like, 11 the next turn. I, mean, I can't even count that high. <laughs> right? It's 2 plus 4 plus 5. And then, yes. then you can crew it defensively too because it has vigilance. vigilance. We should just play that. Whatever deck plays that, we should play. <laughs> um, we'll be the beatdown and we'll be the control. <laughs> so that's well, that's vigilance. what's great about modern vehicles is it, it can attack from those different accesses. That's why going into Pittsburgh, I was on the plan of let's bring in Transgress the Mind against Marty vehicles. Really? Yeah. Dude, it's all about what's on the table. Their I don't know. Is, they've always got another sweet card they can play. That's what I think. Sure. That's one man's opinion. All right. Who's the beatdown? Still good? 18 Still years. good. Maybe not as... Do you think it's as relevant in this standard environment than others? I mean... It's always relevant. Who's the beatdown is... is remembered because it was first, not because it was best, I sure. think. It sets up a conceptual framework in a time when magic strategy was not very well developed. Yeah. Right? So I actually, because this is the most cited article in the magic canon, and thereby it's like my most cited article, I'm actually relatively embarrassed at the diction that I use, right? Like I use a lot of slang um, sure. and stuff like that. So you really get textbook written. Thing, like here's how to be here's how the, to be the beat down and it also makes very definitive claims that aren't true right? sure like you'll always lose if you do you don't always lose if you do alright that's the 
uh, you know, will you, will you be at a disadvantage? Probably you'll be at a substantial disadvantage, but you won't always lose. Like I'd say, misassignment of role equals game loss. Misassignment of role against a mana screwed child is unlikely to be game loss, right? That's the yeah, but it's like having the how to win a PTQ mindset, right? Just a good mindset to have. Yeah, but I, but I, you don't really want to be definitive about things that aren't. Definitive. Sure, sure. That's it. That that actually, I think that constricts your mindset, right? Gotcha. At some point, you're just a crazy person if you talk like that. So, <laughs> anyway, anyway, uh, I, I think it's still an article for for younger players, up and coming players who, who've never read it, or I guess just revisit it if uh, yeah, if you're a player who has, I hope they liked it. This is the second episode of the Ancestral Recall podcast. Yeah. I'm um, Michael J. I'm Roman Fusco. The end. The end. <laughs> uh, see you next week. Not if I see you first. Right. <laughs>